welcome to the first uh, podcast hosted by Reflux UK. I'm Nick Boyle, surgeon. Tonight, we're going to be discussing Barrett's esophagus. It's a topic that absolutely is at the forefront of patients' mind and arguably should be at the forefront of the minds of all clinicians looking after patients with reflux. And it's one on which there've been enormous, there's been enormous progress made over the last decade, particularly um, on treatment options, but increasingly also in diagnostic tools. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome two of the UK's experts in Barrett's. Um, Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald is Professor of Cancer Prevention at the University of Cambridge, and she is um, Honorary Consultant in Gastroenterology at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. And uh, Dr. Jason Dunn is Consultant Gastroenterologist and Clinical Lead for Endoscopy at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospitals in London. Um, he, uh, as a junior doctor and research student, uh, researched into Barrett's and indeed was awarded a Cancer Research UK Fellowship, um, which helped him attain his PhD. And since he was appointed at St. Thomas's, he set up one of the largest Barrett's endoscopy treatment centres in the UK, um, um, which has got a catchment area across the whole of the southeast of England. So, um, Rebecca, Jason, uh, welcome. It's a, a pleasure to have you here. Uh, perhaps what we can do is just start with a, a, a little bit of context, um, just understanding the history of Barrett's when it was first described, because actually there are some who argue that it shouldn't be called Barrett's at all, uh, and that um, there are others who are slight, slightly perhaps more deserving of the eponym. So, Jason, um, perhaps you'd like to just uh, tell us about the history. Thanks, Nick, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, well, it's um, Norman Barrett was the name of the uh, uh, surgeon who first described this condition. And this was uh, first described in the 1950s. Uh, Norman Barrett was a surgeon at St. Thomas's, actually, um, with the unfortunate nickname Pasty Barrett, because I don't think he got out in the sun too much. But um, he was a surgeon who described something a little bit different to what we know Barrett's now is. He described a, a congenital condition. Uh, whereas we now know that Barrett's is acquired. Um, but the condition was columnar esophagus in the lower lower third. Uh, he described a few case series of uh, ulceration. Um, so that was really where it got its name. And and um, the, the, there was a, a, some argument at the time, wasn't there? He was, a, he was actually a thoracic surgeon. So there was an argument between him and, a, and another surgeon called Allenson, um, and it was actually Allenson who I think uh, eventually understood exactly what Barrett's was. That's right. I think they disagreed on this one. Uh, surgeons do tend to do that sometimes. Um, but um, Allenson was the one who first described, I think, the link actually between reflux and, and Barrett's and columnar lined esophagus. And certainly, although Barrett agreed with him, uh, uh, he suggested it uh, was called lower esophagus lined by columnar epithelium. And so, so it is called columnar lined esophagus. Uh, that, that's uh, another uh, name for it, essentially. So, Rebecca, I think I certainly remember uh, as, a, as a, a trainee becoming quite confused about how exactly Barrett's is defined. Is it an endoscopic diagnosis made at the time of an endoscopy? Is it a diagnosis made upon uh, the basis of biopsies? taken at the time 
Um, uh, there's short segment Barrett's, long segment Barrett's, and more recently, irregular Z-lines. Uh, I think patients and very often doctors get very, very confused about all those definitions. Can you tell us today what we understand Barrett's to be? Yes, Nick, I, you're absolutely right about the confusion. So our guidelines have slightly different definitions, which, uh, you know, doesn't help clarify. But let me try and make this as clear as I, I can. So, so it's both a endoscopic diagnosis and a pathological diagnosis. In an ideal world, you need to have both things. So, so both of your surmises are correct. It's both endoscopic and histopathological. So an endoscopist looking down the esophagus, we've already talked about a columnar-lined esophagus. The esophagus normally is squamous-lined like the skin. And um, when you go into the stomach, then you have this transition to columnar. So what Barrett's esophagus is, in a way, is the wrong type of lining in the wrong place. So it's, it's a kind of intestinal lining, often has gastric features as well. So it can be a bit of a mosaic of stomach features and, and uh, intestinal features up there in the esophagus where it shouldn't be. Now, how can you see it down the endoscope? You can see it because actually the, the columnar esophagus has a richer blood supply, so it makes it look much darker red. Often it's referred to as salmon pink. And it does, does rather look like a kind of salmon texture. And so you have this much darker red salmon pink appearance in the esophagus where it should be this very light pink uh, squamous lining. A lot of these patients have a hiatus hernia as well, as you know. So that can also make it a little bit difficult sometimes to know exactly where the esophagus finishes and the stomach finish uh, starts. So what you're looking for is this change to the columnar salmon pink lining above the hiatus, above the top of the stomach, going in to the, the thorax where the esophagus should be. And um, then you need to confirm that with a biopsy so that the pathologist can see if it is indeed um, the kind of lining which is columnar and whether it has these intestinal features. And this is where the US and the UK diverge a little bit, because in the US they insist that you have to see these intestinal features to call it Barrett's, whereas in the UK we say that even if it's gastric only, probably there are some intestinal cells there if you take enough biopsies. So we include either, although as we'll go on to our follow-up is a little bit different according to whether you have the intestinal features or not. So, um, so you have to see it and then you have to biopsy it. And importantly, you need to tell the pathologist where you've taken your biopsy from. The pathologist needs to know that this isn't a biopsy you've taken from the stomach. This is a biopsy that you took from the esophagus that you think might be Barrett's because you're looking for intestinal lining in the wrong place. So the pathologist can just tell you it's intestinal. They can't necessarily be sure that that came from the esophagus unless you told them that's where you took it from. Do you think that might be the one of the reasons why uh, the diagnosis um, is sometimes erroneously made or it's not made? Because I think it's um, it's it's known that there's a lot of variation uh, between what one endoscopist will call as Barrett's and what another one won't, uh, and that can leave patients very confused. They've had two or three endoscopies, and 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 one endoscopist has said you've got Barrett's, and another then they can't have then have another endoscopy, and they tell well actually you don't have it. Yeah, because it is a little bit subjective. So the endoscopist has got to decide where the stomach ends and the esophagus starts, and there are various landmarks that we look for as. Jason may want to add to as well. We look for the top of the gastric folds at the top of the stomach. You have to ask yourself, is there a hiatus hernia or not? 
And then you have to know, you know, where your true tubular esophagus starts and take the biopsy. So if you put a bit too much air in when you're endoscoping, then it's going to make it a bit difficult to really see the landmarks and you may get the wrong answer. So I'm afraid it, it you know, it, it, can, it should be pretty straightforward, but it can be a bit tricky, especially if the segment of Barrett's is a bit short. I think the diagnosis is more difficult when the length of the Barrett's is quite short. You, you can, you know, kind of stands to reason that if you've got a 10 centimetre segment of Barrett's, and for anyone listening, by the way, your segment of Barrett's, this, this columnar epithelium in the esophagus could be anything from half a centimetre to a centimetre, in which case we could argue about whether that's really Barrett's or not. Or in the more extreme case, to even 15 or 20 centimetres. Now, in those cases, you would hope that the endoscopist, if they're paying attention, if it's 15 centimetres long, there's going to be no... Uh, you know, no debate. But if it's very short, then that's where it may, may be a little bit difficult. And one person looking at it may say, oh, well, I think that's just a variation of normal and there's a stomach lining starting anyway. So I think that's just what we call an irregular Z-line. The Z-line just means that transition from the light pink to the dark pink stomach. So, you know, is that supposed to be a completely straight line or is wavy okay? And if it's wavy, how wavy is normal and when does it start becoming a little bit of a columnar tongue in the esophagus? So these are the things that probably sound perhaps a little bit tedious and, and boring, but these are the kind of things that endoscopists will get exercised about because we're trying to decide the boundary between normal and abnormal. And biology isn't always um, a straight line. <laughs> um, so, and that's so ultra short or irregular Z line. Um, really means you've got a little bit of this columnar lining that may have this intestinal feature when you take a biopsy just poking into your esophagus um, and then in the in the past we've tended to draw an arbitrary distinction between less than three centimeters and greater than three centimeters um, and the guideline published in the early 90s by Stu Speckler made a lot about short versus long segments great uh, greater than three centimeters being long less than three centimeters being short now, clearly, that's somewhat arbitrary distinction. There's nothing magic about three centimetres. But I think the point is, the longer the segment, the greater the cancer risk is, because the more of it you've got, simply put. Um, so, um, so yeah. So I think if you're trying to do a really clear job as an endoscopist and you want to get all the information conveyed for the next person doing the endoscope and to think about the patient's risk of cancer, which we're going to come on to and how often we should be you know, looking at their esophagus. And it's really good to know, have they got a hiatus hernia? How long exactly is the Barrett segment? And we now have a nice way of classifying that. So how how long is it circumferential? How long is the greatest length? It's called the PAR classification. That should be documented. And how many biopsies you've taken? And all of that information, I think, is really good practice and will help the next endoscopist, who may be someone else, be consistent and help us think in a more sophisticated way about how we monitor you for cancer rather than just saying, oh, it's Barrett's, that means we do X, because actually we may do a slightly different thing for different people depending on their particular risk factors and features. Okay, well, that's, um, uh, so that's fa the fantastic synopsis on how we define uh, Barrett's. I think um, there is some disagreement, isn't there, Jason, about just how common it is. Uh, and it depends on how you how you define your population group, I guess, in in when in who you're looking for. But just give us an idea of how common it is, 
who is potentially at risk? Are there particular characteristics which make you more at risk of developing uh, of developing Barrett's? And and indeed, is it becoming more common? Well, I think it is, Nick. I mean, if you look at the data that's coming through on on the um, incidence and prevalence of Barrett's esophagus, and and also of esophageal cancer, there's certainly an increased incidence um, of, of uh, these conditions. Um, difficult to put an exact number on it, of course, because a lot of Barrett's goes undiagnosed. Um, and this is where I'm sure Rebecca will talk about her screening tools, because we, unfortunately, there's a lot of patients with Barrett's that we just don't know about. Um, but, you know, in a ballpark, we can say at least... Um, around 10% of patients with chronic reflux are likely to have underlying Barrett's esophagus. It is much more common in men. Um, if you look at the, the data, that it's quite clear that it's a male-predominant disease, um, almost in the ratio of like 3 to 4 to 1. Um, so it's, it's very much more common in men. And it seems to be more common uh, in uh, Caucasians as well, rather than other um, uh, ethnic groups such as uh, Mediterranean or, or South Asian, where they're very low levels of Barrett's and uh, Afro-Caribbeans, it's, it's extremely rare. So um, the the answers for this, we, we, we don't really know. Certainly, um, that's a sort of uh, area rich in research at the moment. Um, but certainly there's been some suggestions about um, uh, why men are, are, are more commonly affected than uh, so it's actually probably quite uh, it's it's probably far more common than 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 uh, many people appreciate. There are probably lots of people with Barrett's uh, who don't know they've got Barrett's. Um, but I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, Rebecca. Well, it, it is associated with reflux, isn't it? And we do know that reflux is probably becoming more common. Generally, when was it first appreciated that reflux and Barrett's were connected yeah well, it's an interesting question Nick and actually I had to go and look this up because I wasn't quite sure it's the sort of thing that you just always assumed that was appreciated from the beginning I think um, as Jason alluded to when he was talking about the history that there was uh, Alison did have some inkling about this um, there you know there seemed to be an association but I don't think it was proven and then gradually various strands of ev evidence come together um, and actually I found this interesting paper published in 1987 in journal Gastroenterology, which is a journal many of us still publish things in now. And this was a study where they took some patients with symptoms of reflux and they arranged to endoscope them. And they also took um, barium swallows from them, interestingly. We would never use that now to, to diagnose this condition. But out of their 97 patients, they found that 12 of them had Barrett's esophagus. Now, it's quite a small sample size. We might criticise that study design today. Um, but it was, um, you know, they were looking particularly for this. So that's, you know, a good way to do research. Um, and they found that it was this association. Now, that, of course, doesn't absolutely prove that the reflux causes Barrett's, but it was quite good evidence along the way. And then people have done a number of um, different sorts of studies measuring pH levels in people with and without Barrett's esophagus. And then there have been various animal models. The animal models aren't terribly good for this condition because their anatomy is quite different, actually. Our upright anatomy um, in the human is quite different.
different to try and stop us getting reflux, I think. And we, we have gravity to assist, of course, compared to rodents and things where lots of those studies were done. But gradually, the evidence came together based on the study of the epidemiology. So looking at the pH, looking at people with and without Barrett's, the animal studies that, that more and more led us to understand that reflux was the cause. But of course, the other thing is that a lot of people with reflux don't necessarily feel it as heartburn. So we also have this thing, silent reflux, and there'll be some patients with Barrett's who said, well, I never felt any heartburn at all in my life. Um, but they may have had reflux, but not known about it. So that's uh, that's very interesting, isn't it? So uh, I think, as you've, you've just pointed out, there is this association with acid reflux and Barrett's. But there are many workers who contend, well, it's not just acid which irritates uh, the the lining of the esophagus and sets up this reaction which changes the cells. There are other components as well of, of um, what comes up and what refluxes from the stomach. Jason, what's the what's the thinking, the current thinking about what I think uh, was described by a famous surgeon, Tom Demeester, as the witch's brew? What you know? Do you think it's more than just acid that causes uh, Barrett's or not? Rebecca might be best to answer in terms of the genetics behind this, I'm sure. But um, we know certainly that there's bile, uh, there's pepsin. Uh, so there's other things rather than just acid that are coming up into the esophagus and causing the injury that sets the uh, metaplastic change in motion. Um, so for sure, I think that uh, what was mentioned earlier about, you know, the majority of patients with Barrett's have a hiatus hernia. That's absolutely true. Um, and we know that patients uh, from impedance studies where we measure uh, both pH but also um, other fluid uh, shifts in the esophagus with, with a, an acid uh, monitor, um, that patients with a hydrosonium reflux, they have non-acidic reflux as well. Um, so for sure, I think uh, there's something there that's beyond just acid, which is why PPIs don't treat it entirely. It's not the whole story. Rebecca, do you want to add to that at all? No, I mean, the question is, does it run in families, I guess? Um, there are some families, and this is, very, this is rare, this is very unusual, but there are occasional families where you see several cases of Barrett's and cancer of the esophagus running in the family that suggests there's quite a strong genetic element. Now, unfortunately, we haven't identified a single gene to account for that, so we can't test a family to see if the person's at risk from their inherited genetic makeup um, that's something that may come but it's rare so it's difficult to study but what we do know is that genes probably your inheritance probably has some contribution maybe to whether you're likely to have reflux or not and then whether you um, those genetic changes are more associated with Barrett's or cancer but it's not one gene it's sort of a combination of your genes um, but together then with the reflux may put you at slightly greater risk than some other people and I suppose that that brings us on to why Barrett's ultimately is of such interest to everybody, and that's its relationship to cancer. So perhaps you could just give us a little bit of idea about the sequence of events which happens or is thought to happen in Barrett's and and the relationship to cancer and how commonly that occurs. Yeah. So I think... The, the association with cancer was some, realised some, some time after Barrett's was, was described. And um, I remember reading, actually, on my way to the BSG, um, 
1999, the New England Journal Medicine paper by Jesper Lagergen, who's based at the Karolinska, but also at St. Thomas's, where, where Jason is, surgeon, who um, did some research, a really big study involving interviews um, in Sweden, where they have fantastic population records, and actually asked people about their history of heartburn and interviewed people with and without cancer of the esophagus. And the results were really striking um, and found that people that had cancer of the esophagus, adenocarcinoma is the kind of cancer we're talking about, had a, had a history of, had were more likely to have a history of heartburn. Um, and actually, the longer they'd had heartburn for, and the more severe it was, the greater the association was. So that was really, I think, the first time that it put it on the map. And of course, cancer is what, you know, is a big health worry for everybody. And if you're ill, one of the things you want to know about is, could it be cancer? And what's my, you know, I've got a, a condition like Barrett's, what's the chance it could lead to cancer? The good news is most patients with Barrett's will never get esophageal cancer. And in a way, if you're one of the people that knows you've got Barrett's, I think that's probably a good thing because it means we could be proactive and monitor you. As we said earlier, a lot of people with Barrett's have no idea they've got it. So they have no opportunity to be monitored. I think the other really important thing is that by and large, the progression to cancer is gradual. And actually, we increasingly recognise this for all cancers, what we call epithelial cancers, so cancers of organs, not we have blood cancers here, but cancers of occurring in a tissue lining generally occur quite slowly over many years. So if we know that we've got a precancerous condition like Barrett's and we know it will probably, if it does progress, go slowly, then we've got plenty of time, actually, an opportunity to look for those changes of progression, which we call dysplasia, which the pathologist can see down the microscope, so that when those changes start happening, we can actually go in and be, you know, take precautions, be preventative, be proactive, and actually treat it before the cancer develops. So in terms of the risks, it's about one in 300 patients um, will progress to cancer per year. So it's it's a low risk. Of course, this is the thing that everybody with Barrett's wants to know. How likely am I to develop cancer? Two questions, I suppose. Firstly, just put that into perspective in terms of other known pre-malignant conditions. Um, and, and secondly, are there any particular markers that help to distinguish patients at a higher risk um, and therefore more likely to develop cancer that we can identify. Jason. Yeah, um, I think, uh, as alluded to, you know, dysplasia is is an opportunity, actually, for, for um, patients uh, to have change in their treatment pathway. Because surveillance, the real goal of surveillance is actually to find dysplasia. That's what we're looking for when we're doing these biopsies every two centimetres around the Barrett segment. We are trying to find a clue, a pathological clue, that this patient's risk of progression is not 0.3% per annum, as, as Rebecca mentioned, but in the case of low-grade dysplasia, perhaps 5% per year, perhaps with high-grade dysplasia, there's a good chance you're going to get cancer in the next three years. And some patients with high-grade, in fact, quite a few already have an early cancer. So dysplasia is a really crucial thing in the management of patients with Barrett's esophagus. And that's why it's so important to do Barrett's surveillance well so that your dysplasia detection rate, the, the, the amount of patients you pick up with dysplasia, is high. 
Now, a similar thing can be seen with polyps in the colon, for example, adenomas, where we're looking for um, precancerous changes in the colon to colon cancer. And those uh, uh, it's one of the quality hallmarks of a good colonoscopy is the detection rate of polyps or adenomas. And we know from studies in the colon that if your detection rate is very high, your risk of a cancer developing within the three-year surveillance interval is actually very low. And that's what we want to achieve with Barrett's esophagus, to have a very low interval cancer rate between your surveillance endoscopies. Um, but Barrett's esophagus has a very low progression rate. I mean, compared to a polyp, for example, there's probably a 10 times less progression rate with Barrett's esophagus without dysplasia compared to a polyp. Okay, so um, it, 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 perhaps just a, a final question on this risk stratification. What about the length of, of Barrett's? I think Rebecca did mention this earlier on, but somebody who's got a three or four centimeter segment of Barrett's, for instance, compared with somebody who's got a short segment, um, you know, how do you advise people to look at their risk? Because, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to quantify this for an individual, isn't it? The, the problem with yeah, long-segment... I mean, think, uh... Oh, sorry. <laughs> we both wanted to jump at that one. Well, do, uh, Rebecca, first. you go first and then Jason, <laughs> Jason come back. Well, I think there are several several factors which, which you can, you know, give you an idea. So men are at greater risk than women of cancer in their barrets. Longer segments are more... Um, risky than shorter segments and in fact in our British Society Gastroenterology Guidelines for Barrett's we actually suggest slightly different follow-up intervals according to the length um, and for very short segments we, we say you know check if, if is there any intestinal metaplasia and if not then the risk may be so low that you could discharge them and if it's if it's less than three centimeters and there's some intestinal metaplasia then you could probably wait three or even five years but if it's longer than that you may want to do it two to three years it's an art not a science that's the trouble the data isn't you know it's not so easy to say per centimeter of length exactly what your follow-up should be that's probably not going to be um there's a correlation for sure with length and cancer risk but it's not an exact science so it's difficult to put that into a an algorithm and on its own to be enough to advise on risk stratification but i think actually we're starting to move in that direction not just based on length but based on some of the other cellular and molecular features. So this gets quite complicated, but there may be um, some ways that we can use a simple um, protein marker called P53 that you can stain for in a routine lab to tell whether someone that goes along with dysplasia, that if you see that that's coming up positive, and a lot of hospitals now do this pretty routinely, staining for P53, um, I suspect it'll come into the guidelines before long, that probably tells you you need to take more attention and follow someone up. And also looking at the, we call it the DNA copy number. So this does get a bit uh, technical, but we should have um, one DNA copy from our mother, one from our father for all of our genes. And in, as cells start to become dysplastic and abnormal, those that proportion of copies starts to go a bit awry and the DNA starts copying itself more than it should be. So you can also look at those copy number changes. And what's quite cool is you don't actually have to know where in the genome to look particularly. You don't have to look in a particular gene. You can just take a snapshot view across all of the genes and just see if that copy number is starting to get a bit 
more chaotic and not be nice and we call it diploid or two across all the genes. So I think those are the kind of tools which are probably coming down the track, which will enable us to say, okay, you've got a seven centimeter segment. We've done the P53 staining, it's positive. The genome copy number is looking a bit awry. This person probably is heading towards treatment. Whereas another person, this is a very short segment. We do the molecular tests, nothing shows up at all. Maybe you can go away for five years. So I think we will get a bit more sophisticated. And I think it's that's really on the horizon, I think. Jason, did you want to add anything to that? No, I, I agree. I think um, we're moving into an age of personalised medicine and uh, uh, this is where it's heading with, with biomarkers in, in Barrett's esophagus. Um, what I was going to say, another hidden risk of the length of the Barrett segment is, of course, um, biopsy fatigue, essentially. So you have to take a lot of biopsies per two centimetres and as the segment gets longer, the endoscopist gets a bit tired, their list is getting, um, they've got to go home soon and they won't maybe take all the biopsies they should have done. And it's absolutely crucial that you give it time. And the longer the Barrett's the segment, the more time you should spend on that Barrett segment. So uh, that's one of the key things which may come into guidelines as well next time is the, uh, the withdrawal time, looking at that Barrett segment really carefully because often you can see these subtle abnormalities if you've got the right uh, endoscopic tools and some of the um, uh, the visual acuity some of some of the uh, the endoscopic uh, images are stunning now with the latest equipment yeah i really agree with that and i think that the dutch have moved to a centralized system for their very long segments so that they really can take the time and have got people really who are experts and interested in this condition to monitor so I think, I think what you're what what you're you're saying is is a couple of things really. The the first is that the changes which occur in Barrett's are likely to be localized, uh, and therefore there's inevitably a, a sampling error. If you take a biopsy from an area where there, there 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 aren't those more advanced dysplastic changes, then you'll just miss it. So you have to look really carefully and take lots of biopsies to try and minimize that risk. And and the obvious consequence of that is the quality of the uh, of the the endoscopy is all important, and um, you need to make sure that whoever's doing the endoscopy takes the time and knows what they're doing. Um, as I suppose in most things in life. So, Jason, I think um, what has happened a lot in recent years is the change in the way we can treat dysplasia and indeed early cancers. Um, uh, you know. It wasn't very long ago that even if you had just a very early cancer, you were committed to have an esophagectomy, a you know massive operation with lots of risks involved. But that's all changed. Just give us a feel of how uh, how you treat patients with these early changes or early cancers today. Well, this has been one of the uh, real revolutions of endoscopic uh, treatment for uh, for early cancer. Um, and it really only started, as you said, about uh, 20, 30 years ago. Um, it, it initially started using uh, something called photodynamic therapy. Uh, whereas photodynamic therapy was where you gave a drug that sensitized the lining of the esophagus to a, a light, a, a certain uh, light, actually a laser. And then that light um, activated the cells with the drug inside and basically pop them 
So you get cell death, but only in the area of abnormal cells, i.e. the Barrett segment. Very clever. Um, it didn't really take off because it, 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 it took a lot of time. The patients were sensitive to light for up to a month afterwards and had to stay indoors. Obviously not a problem recently. Um, but, you know, so BDT was something that just showed us what we could do with an endoscope rather than, uh, as you say, a quite debilitating uh, operation for a lot, of, a lot of patients. Moving on from that, um, around 2007, I remember because we were one of the first centres to do it when I was at UCL, was uh, radiofrequency ablation. And this is now the most commonly used for removing that abnormal Barrett segment. It's, a, it's another type of tissue ablation where you essentially take a very fine burn, half a millimetre to the lining, which removes all that abnormal Barrett's uh, segment, all that, all that abnormal cells, and what grows back, provided uh, in a nicely acid-controlled environment, is normal tissue. So essentially we say this to patients, you know, we're kind of turning back the clock, we're putting back what should have happened in the first place when you have that reflux injury and replacing it with normal tissue. It's highly effective. I mean, we see over 90% success rates with it. Um, and it's really changed how we manage Barrett's because now we've gone from, you know, surveying or just watching patients with high-grade dysplasia who weren't fit for surgery or a very big operation for an early cancer into these endoscopic techniques where we either cut out the early cancer and then use the ablation or just the ablation sometimes for dysplasia. Um with with really good results, so yeah, it's been a it's been a huge success for um, for endoscopy essentially. And and the um, you mentioned as well, Jay, Jason, the um, sort of microsurgery down the endoscope and doing these endoscopic mucosa resections, and then you know learning from the Japanese, getting more bold and actually going deeper and doing endoscopic submucosal dissections. And these are patients that really before would would certainly have gone to surgery. And I think we're pushing the boundaries ever more as to what we can deal with endoscopically which I think is is really important there are several of course important questions to ask about exactly you know when when you perhaps can't go quite deep enough and you have to accept that that, that patient might need surgery so I think there are some important studies to be done there which uh, the community is certainly trying to do but more and more we're, we're sparing people surgery I think which is tremendous and 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 of course um just out of interest Jason, how how many of these patients do you think that you end up doing these really clever and sophisticated procedures on? How many of them do you think you found from uh, the surveillance programs that you talked about earlier on? So they're picked up um, and deliberately you, you, you've interrupted the sequence of events which would otherwise happen and you've deliberately done that. And, and, and how many do you think just coming off the street because they've suddenly developed new symptoms? Well, it's not as many as you'd hope that come through the surveillance pathway, actually. Um, certainly looking at hard data at St. Thomas's and probably reflected by the National Esophageal uh, Gastric Cancer Audit, um, it's probably only about 40% that have had a previous, have had their dysplasia identified in a surveillance programme at a local hospital. A lot of them present with other things, like they've, for example, had anemia. They've been investigated for that with an endoscopy, and they found Barrett's. And straight away, that first endoscopy, they had dysplasia or early cancer, and it's just been sat there. 
Um, and there's a lot of patients who, uh, uh, you know, just uh, present for other reasons like reflux, for example, and that's when it's first diagnosed. So we'd love to see it earlier. Um, and, you know, this is the, um, uh, the exciting thing about Rebecca's uh, cytosponge as a screening tool to try and find these patients at an earlier stage where you can watch them properly rather than they turn up at a late stage. We're sure you can still treat them, but, you know, there's obviously when you're that close to the margins, there's a lot of people you're also missing who have more advanced cancers. So, Rebecca, that brings me neatly to this, um, uh, this, the, this business of screening, because as Jason just said, uh, patients that he sees who have developed uh, dysplasia or early cancers, um, the majority of them are not recognized before they have that diagnosis as having Barrett's. And actually, the majority of people who present with more advanced esophageal cancer, I think, are in the same situation. So, they will have had reflux for many years. They'll have developed Barrett's. They may or they may not have been treated for symptoms of reflux. But nonetheless, by the time they develop cancer, too often it's at a late stage and fails treatment. So how can we solve this problem? How can we identify these patients better? Because clearly what we're doing at the moment doesn't seem to be working very well. Yeah, I completely agree. And you've summarised it really well. And about 20 years ago, I really started pondering this and thinking, you know, surveillance is quite good if you do it well and, and the treatments gradually started improving, as Jason described. But, you know, it's kind of missing the point because most of these patients just don't know they've got Barrett's. What can we do? Are we going to endoscope them all? Are we going to endoscope everyone with a bit of heartburn? And what would the ingredients of a screening test look like? You know, it needs to be something that is relatively non-invasive easy to do, potentially, you know, I was thinking sort of in a GP surgery would be ideal and something um, also affordable. And um, so that's how gradually um, we came up with the idea of a cytosponge. It started off actually with a kind of bottle brush type of idea. Um, and we actually made a bottle brush in the engineering labs in Cambridge, um, a tiny bottle brush that we were sort of introduced by a rigid catheter. Um, I never tried it. It looked a bit like a lethal weapon, sort of sword swallowing or something. Um, and then, you know, thought we'd better if the patient could just swallow it themselves. And then so for people who don't know what cytosponge is, it's a, it's a spherical sponge uh, sort of squashed into a capsule. And, and it's on a string. So you swallow the capsule. It's about the size of a multivitamin pill. that has got this sponge squashed inside it. You hold on to the string so that it doesn't run away. It's quite important. And you, when when the when the capsule gets into the stomach, then the warm, moist environment means that that capsule, which is just a um, vegetarian capsule, can be gelatin, that kind of thing, it just dissolves and out pops the sponge. And then a nurse will pull it back on the string and it will collect cells. So it's really just a cell collection device. It'll collect cells on the surface of that sponge and inside the sort of mesh of the sponge on its way out. So you get some a few cells from the top of the stomach and then you get cells all the way up the esophagus. If you've got Barrett's, you get columnar cells on it. And then you get the normal lining squamous cells. And you get a few cells from your mouth as well. So you end up with a, a sort of a, a swab of your esophagus as this sponge comes back out. So very, very simple. And then the nurse just cuts the string and pops the sponge into a pot that you send off to the lab for analysis. So, I mean, at the beginning um, of this podcast, Nick, you were saying, you know, how do you diagnose Barrett's? Is it with an endoscopy or pathology or both? 
Well, the cytosponge is a kind of different way of diagnosing Barrett's. You don't get any view of it. There's no camera. That would uh, defeat the purpose. It would make it too complicated, too expensive. So there's no camera. You're relying entirely on the analysis of the cells in this specimen to find the markers of Barrett's. So, so the cells are sent to the lab. We spin them down, um, make some slides, and the pathologist looks at those cells. Um, and we look for the hallmarks we talked about earlier, particularly the intestinal cells. And we have an antibody called TFF3, which we um, identified as being very specific for Barrett's, that we stain for. And it's nice because it just stains those cells brown. So they're very easy to spot under the microscope. And if you just have some of those cells there, you call it positive even one is enough. And if you don't have any of those brown TFF3 positive cells, then we just score it negative. Um, and recently, we've been making a machine learning algorithm so you could potentially automate this. So you don't have to have a pathologist looking down the endoscope counting them all. But it's a really nice, simple test. It takes about 10 minutes. Can be done in the GP surgery. So um, we've done um, two big trials now in GP surgeries. Um, it's very safe. People don't mind it. Any of these tests, you know, if you're going to have a a mammogram or a cervical smear or a blood test. You don't, it's not something you're going to want to have every day, but it's pretty, it's pretty doable, you know, for a screening test. The kind of thing that you'll just grin and bear. You think, oh, it's giving me a bit of a sore throat for 24 hours. Um, much more convenient than going to the hospital for an endoscopy. Um, much less expensive. So, um, yeah, so that's what we've come up with as a way of um, screening. And there are other ways you could do screening too, but it has to have those kind of ingredients of being simple, relatively non-invasive. So, you know, uh, people are looking at other similar sorts of ideas. Could you do it with a blood test? Could you do it with a breath test? Nasal endoscopy, Jason might want to talk about a little bit, but that's a, a sort of slimmer endoscope you can put down the nose and try and screen for Barrett's. But again, it's not quite as user-friendly, I'd say, as a pin on a string kind of idea. So. Um, uh, Jason, do you do you want to comment on the, the, the um, nasal endoscopy? Um, so, what we know um, with regards to the COVID pandemic is that it's had a significant impact on endoscopy services uh, throughout the world, actually, and particularly in the UK, where we saw uh, a drop in um, endoscopy activity around the first lockdown, um, and we haven't fully recovered since then. Certainly, one of the major um, areas that's been impacted is surveillance endoscopy. So what we're uh, trying to do now is to look outside of the endoscopy department and try and move away from standard conventional oral gastroscopy uh, for Barrett surveillance. Um, there's a, a lot of emerging evidence on alternative techniques. One of those um, we're particularly interested in is transnasal endoscopy, because um, the scopes uh, are of uh, the same or even slightly better quality than the gastroscopes we currently have, but they're half the size and therefore they can go um, through the nose. You avoid sedation, which is very important because uh, often in uh, busy endoscopy units, there's, it's difficult to socially distance. Um, and in addition, you can take all the standard biopsies that you would uh, uh, with, a, with a standard gastroscope. It's very safe, um, uh, and it's uh, more importantly, it can be done outside of the endoscopy unit. So I think this is something that will really um, grow in popularity um, uh, as a result of the uh, COVID pandemic. 
I mean, these uh, these options and particularly Cytosponge, which is um, already available, uh, clearly uh, have the aim of identifying more patients with Barrett's so that they can then enter surveillance programs and 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 we can identify um, those who then become at risk because they develop dysplasia, which is fantastic. But what about actually intervening to try to prevent that progression? Um, so I think for a long, we, we know that obviously that Barrett's is associated with reflux and there have been some recent papers published, haven't there, Rebecca, looking at um, how potentially the use of antacids or, or other medications can influence um, the progression of Barrett's. I find it quite difficult, personally, having this discussion with people because some people don't like the idea of PPI. Sometimes, although they're safe drugs, generally they can cause side effects of one kind or another. And if somebody's got a, a short segment of Barrett's, do you you know, and, and, and they're quite elderly, do you really want to introduce them on these drugs? Just give us a feeling for what your approach would be um, and the dis kind of discussion that you have with patients when you're, you're discussing what options are available to, uh, um, you know, medication to stop, to stop the progression of Barrett's. Yeah, I mean, I think... It... Go on, Jason. Well, I think the important point is that these drugs are safe. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, different reporting about the risks of um, long-term proton pump inhibitor use, but um, a lot of the larger meta-analysis, uh, big studies, uh, pooling all these together, show that they're very safe drugs if used properly. And I think Barrett's esophagus is an example where they are used properly. And it's not until the recent ASPECT study, which was a large study, one of the largest randomized trials in Barrett's ever, ever undertaken, where they were randomizing patients to either low-dose or high-dose uh, ezimeprazole plus uh, aspirin. Uh, in that study, they showed the uh, protective effect actually of proton pump inhibitors at a higher dose, uh, as well as that of aspirin. Um, and the combination of the two has actually had the highest protective effect of all. So um, the, it is important from that study, we can extrapolate that it is important that um, acid is well controlled. And we know this from other um, uh, studies in Barrett's esophagus, uh, for example, following radiofrequency ablation, where um, it really needs to heal in an acid-controlled environment. So we put patients on very high doses of PPIs to control uh, the reflux while the esophagus is healing post-ablation, um, and they do very well as a result of that. So um, the question, I think, that will come in the future is what are the alternative ways that we can control reflux away from long-term PPIs? And certainly... Uh, traditionally, you know, surgeries, fund duplications been seen as quite a, a, a major operation for for reflux. Um, newer operations like the Lynx procedure, for example, minimally invasive, uh, this is where they may have a role. Um, there's other um, potential endoscopic techniques as well, uh, such as Streta. So um, there are um, emerging data coming through about these techniques and I think that may answer the question in the future. And certainly a big trial is needed um, 
with regards to links and uh, risk of Barrett's progression, uh, that's something that really needs to happen. Rebecca? Yeah, the other thing just to add is that the benefit in that trial was mainly after you'd taken these drugs, high-dose PPI and aspirin, for eight to nine years. Um, so, so that's quite an ask for, for people. I mean, I think my, my approach is, at the moment, based on the evidence we've got, to make sure we're treating symptoms adequately, to be thinking about any downsides of PPIs for that patient, particularly if it might be an elderly patient with osteoporosis, for example, then you might want to think about the dose and maybe high dose PPI may not be, you know, if you, if you don't need it for their symptoms, you might want to try and reduce it or think of another alternative to control their reflux, anti-reflux procedure. And then to make sure that the surveillance is being done well. And that's, I think, something we've mentioned several times because we've got such fantastic endoscopic therapies. And for me, the the endoscopic therapy availability and efficacy has kind of altered the balance a bit for the way I think about it. Because to me, the main problem we've got now is that we don't identify enough Barrett's. And our tools actually, once we've identified it, are pretty good for um, you know, monitoring it and treating it endoscopically. And, and the treatment is so easy, really. It's outpatient-based, it's endoscopic. So you have to weigh that against you know, trying to persuade people to take some kind of chemo prevention for a long period of time. So, um, you know, we, we, we could just discuss this and, and debate it and there's no kind of right or, right or wrong answer. But I guess um, my feeling really would be we need to make sure that we do the surveillance well and pick up those people to treat them as and when we need it. And the barrier for treatment may, may you know, we started off just treating high grade. Then the treatment was so efficacious and straightforward to do. It's now approved for low grade. Um, there are debates about whether we could, whether we should treat non-dysplastic Barrett's. I don't know about that. But as we get better at predicting the people at higher risk, I suspect that those people, even before they've got dysplasia, if we can start to see there are some molecular hallmarks or other characteristics about their Barrett's which put them at higher risk, we may want to be, you know, not just doing some kind of chemo prevention unless we could really be sure it was going to stop getting cancer. We might want to be a bit more proactive than that. So I think that's the kind of debate. And just to, I, I mean, personally, just as an aside, Jason's comment around surgery, I mean, he's quite right that the uh, evidence around the influence of surgery on the progression of Barrett's is is, is lacking. Uh, and it really, we do really do need to do some more work on that. And what evidence there is, is mostly epidemiological. Um, but I certainly would contend that, um, you know, I, I think for patients who've got symptomatic reflux disease and Barrett's that it, it, it should be considered as an additional potential benefit in treating their symptoms that it will hopefully also benefit their, the progression of their Barrett's as well and I, I don't think that's a discussion which has had with patients nearly often enough um, but that's just my bugbear. Um, so I, I, I think fantastic discussion. The final thing I would just perhaps to close ask both of you, you know we've talked a lot about uh, where we are today, some glimpses of what might be happening in the future. Uh, in 10, 20 years' time, where will, do you think we'll be on Barrett's? Have you, have you got any, ideally, in your, in your ideal world, what would we, what would, you know, where would we be? How would Barrett's be, be seen compared to today? I mean, Rebecca, you think about this all the time. I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think my ideal would be that we're using a much less non, a much less invasive test, like Cytosponger. It might be something else, 
that will tell you if you've got Barrett's, but not only tell you if you've got it, but whether you're high risk or not. So that you only have to endoscope the people that we think are high risk. And then we can really focus on treating them or doing really proper, you know, really excellent surveillance with advanced imaging if we think they're not quite ready for, for treatment. But most of the patients will never en enter our endoscopy rooms. So we won't have endless lists of three or four segment Barrett's in a patient that's at very low risk. We'll have cracked that already. We'll know from their profile, from their molecular profile of the sample we've taken in the GP surgery from a breath or a saliva or a cyta sponge, exactly what to do with that patient and advise them on their risk. And furthermore, we won't just be thinking about when they have that health check, it won't just be about their esophageal risk. It'll be, you know, to make sure whether they're at risk of colon cancer and breast cancer or whatever else at the same time. It'll be a holistic view about their cancer assessment and their risk, I would hope. But I think our diagnostics, you know, at the moment we spend a lot of time in endoscopy rooms endoscoping a lot of folk who have unpleasant procedures, who are never going to have, you know, their normal procedures, no Barrett's or Barrett's at very low risk. And I think in the future, I hope that uh, that will be a thing of the past. Jason? Um, I think with regards to the future of how we manage Barrett's esophagus, um, the major uh, innovation will be artificial intelligence. And uh, already we're seeing the development of artificial intelligence uh, software in endoscopes. So endoscopes that can uh, automatically recognize abnormal areas of Barrett's, um, e even dysplasia. So if we can get to that point, which I think is on the horizon, where um, uh, an endoscopist can use artificial intelligence to improve their dysplasia detection, that will make a um, that will be a huge um, advantage, uh, because at present still surveillance endoscopy um, is quite variable in how it's carried out, um, and there is a, a high miss rate of dysplasia. So. I think artificial intelligence uh, will really push the boundaries uh, in terms of uh, Barrett's esophagus management. Well, fabulous. Thank you both very much indeed. I think it was a great discussion. I'm very grateful to you both. Mm -hmm.